Yo, partnership alert, partnership alert, partnership alert. Living Corporate has a partnership with LinkedIn Learning, an American massive open online course provider that provides video courses taught by industry experts across a wide array of subjects. Now, the partnership is because Living Corporate has courses on LinkedIn Learning focused on diversity, equity, inclusion for leaders, career professionals, and anyone really looking to upskill themselves and be better allies. So make sure you check out our courses on LinkedIn Learning by clicking the link in the show notes. And let's just say you don't want to do that. You go to LinkedIn Learning on LinkedIn, search Living Corporate. We'll be right there. All right. Peace. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. And, you know, it's officially the fall. Y'all, it's the fall, y'all. I hope that as we continue to shift and change and embrace change, that we recognize that change is constant and it's a beautiful thing. You know, I've been thinking about identity and these systems that we navigate in and by these systems, I mean these exploitative, capitalistic, white supremacist and patriarchal environments and systems that is corporate America. And I I think about um, what it means to survive in these systems and what is identity like? Who are we in these systems? And can we truly be all of who we uh, fully are? In these systems, right? I've been thinking about that a lot. It's interesting how um, me pivoting away from consulting um, and just which is like corporate America and all those things just sped up like it's really tough. Um, but you know, the past almost six months, it's really been a blessing. I've had so much more time to just think, um, to really consider how I feel because my every waking moment is not about production. Yes, I'm still in corporate America. Yes, I'm still plugged into this larger machine, but I'm excited about the work that I'm actually doing. I'm excited about the impact I'm able to create. I'm excited about the teams that I'm working with. I'm excited about the leadership that I'm working with. It's an exciting and frankly fulfilling time. I think there's always going to be the tension of engaging in capitalist systems um, until I decide or if I decide or when I decide to do something fundamentally different, there's always going to be that tension, but I'm genuinely thankful about the the new environment I'm in that's allowed me just to think about who I am um, and, and how I survive and how I exist in these, in these places. And, you know, I've been thinking about the fact that really I honor God the most by being who he designed me to be. And so for me, that means honoring my boundaries, honoring my principles, honoring my values, advocating for myself, speaking truth to power and where I can, you know, advocating for those around me as much as possible. And I'm excited about this new season of just who I've I am, who I'm seeing myself uh, to be. You know, I tweeted uh, earlier a few days ago, right? I tweeted about the fact that corporate America is for black folks can be just so damnably exhausting because you have to put on some mask or put on some version of you 
um, that insulates you from harm. You have to play some sort of game. And y'all, like, I'm just exhausted from playing the game. This is probably like my fifth or sixth time saying that on Living Corporate the past two years. But I remember, like, when I was, was it like 24, 25? I really was playing the game. Like, I was tap dancing, y'all. Like, really trying to make sure that I did the right things. I was very self-deprecating. I would shrink myself and I would seek to be accepted in all spaces and guess what y'all I was a contractor at the time and they cut my contract anyway and they knew I just got married and they knew I just closed on the house and it was something about that moment of losing my job at a job I was working crazy hard at and they knew I was working hard I was doing all the right things I was saying all the right things I was outperforming full-time employees I was basically begging for a full-time job I was doing the best I could and I still got cut I still lost my job now thankfully uh, I found a new job before I had to my last day at that job and we went on and and life went on but I'm just saying like it was scary y'all it was scary I was young I was young just closing on a house in fact hold on now think about it no y'all I was 23 I was 23 years old because it was only like a handful of months after we closed on the house, after we got married, after my wife and I got married. And, um, you know, ever since then, I said, you know what? If this is the result of me trying to assimilate and do everything they asked me to do and being the most respectable, sanitized, neutered version of myself, if this is what this gets me, I'm going to go ahead and be myself everywhere I go and from that day forward I strove and I continue to strive to be a more authentic version of myself every day and um, it's a journey y'all but I say all that to say you know there's so many people I meet and not everybody because I truly have met some genuinely liberated black folks in corporate America in their 50s but they're rare truly more than often I meet people who are like my parents age who have been playing the game so long, they literally don't recognize themselves. They literally cannot engage authentically about just the world in which we live. Like there's a veneer of, um, of inauthenticity. They just can't seem to peel away. And that's scary to me. And I I said, it's like a unique type of hell to me. That's really, really scary to me, right? That's not who I want to be. That's not what I want. That is not what I want. And so I just hope that for everyone listening to this, um, that you strive to to go home and ref, uh, see. I, my hope is that you can recognize the reflection in the mirror when you wrap up your day. And frankly, when you wake up, do you recognize who you see? Like, that's my hope. That's my hope for y'all. That's my hope for me. And I don't believe you do that without honoring who God made you to be. And I don't think I'm unique in that I'm honoring who God made me to be by um, recognizing my own values, my own principles, my own boundaries and affirming those boundaries and those principles and making sure that that folks know what I stand for and that my actions reflect the things that I stand for. Um, it's easy. You make little concessions along the way again. And you look up and you're like, who, where, how did I, sh- where am I? Who am I? Right. 
it's a real thing. And I don't want to shame anybody for what they're trying to have to do to survive. Right. I'm not trying to shame anybody for that. Um, it would be inappropriate for me to blame the victims of these systems and not really critically interrogate the systems. So this is not me shaming anybody. This is me pleading and hoping that you seek to honor yourself by being who you were created to be. All of that being said, I'm really excited about today's podcast. We are able to speak uh, with Alfred Edmonds, who's a senior vice president, the senior vice president of black enterprise. You know, it's funny. The further and further living corporate grows and goes. Um, we have increasing opportunities to meet the people who inspired us. That's really cool. Like to me, like that's a sign of success. Like that in itself is a sign of growth. The fact that, you know, I remember as a child going to the hair salon and cause my, my mom, it was me and my mom growing up. Right. So my mom would take me to the hair salon on Saturdays and I'd just be sitting there and I had my little toy. I might have a game boy or something, but you know, you sit there in a little chair and you would see um, the magazine rack. And in that magazine rack, you would see Ebony. You would see jet. You would for sure see jet. Like do not play. You would see jet magazine every, every time. And you'd also see black enterprise. And I remember just, always going to that black enterprise because there was always some picture of somebody dressed really well, looking really good. And they just looked successful. Like it was super cool. Like, and I was like, man, what does it take to even be associated with this black enterprise? Right. And I remember when we talked about like living corporate and like, what did we wanted it to be? And it's like, yeah, I really wanted to be like this generation's black enterprise, right? Like wanted to be something flat and accessible and authentic and, and real like there are inspirations out there and black enterprise was a heavy inspiration for what living corporate started as and what it continues to be. And so, you know, really excited about my conversation with Mr. Edmonds and I'm really looking forward to y'all checking out this discussion. Make sure y'all check out the links in the show notes. Y'all learn more about what he has going on, but we'll talk about that. Like after the recording, after the interview, right? Um, Before we have our discussion, with Alfred Edmonds, Senior VP of Black Enterprise. We're going to tap in with Tristan. See you in a minute. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. On this episode, let's talk about a couple of questions you should ask yourself before you quit your job. The trend, known as the Great Resignation, where employees are quitting their jobs voluntarily as work life returns to something near normal, has taken companies by surprise. In August, 4.3 million, or 2.9% of the entire workforce, quit their jobs. If you're considering hopping on the trend, there are a few things you should ask yourself. The first question is, can the problem be fixed? Before you can answer this question, you have to actually know what the problem is. Why do you want to quit your job? Are you not challenged enough? Do you not get paid enough? Is the job too demanding? In every job we take, we will have moments of unhappiness and dissatisfaction, but is the problem you're running from big enough that it can't be fixed? If so, then you may want to start searching for a new role. But if you think it can be fixed, you might want to try to resolve it first. The second question is, have my life or career goals changed? The pandemic has forced many of us to reconsider our priorities. 
Maybe you don't want to commute a long distance or work long hours. Maybe you want to work remotely. Maybe you want to do something completely different. If you're going to be looking for a new job, you want to make sure you're finding the right fit and something that will help you get to the next level in your career. The last question is, do I have another job lined up? If not, do I have a solid plan so I can afford to quit? Look, I don't know any adults who don't have bills to pay and other obligations. Take some time to assess your financial situation to see if you can afford to up and quit your job. If your job is not toxic or incredibly damaging to your physical or mental health, you may need to put off your resignation to ensure your stability. We've all had those tough times at work where we begin to contemplate our future with the company, but before you quit, make sure you're making the right decision for yourself. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Access Point. The reality is, this is the largest influx of black and brown talent corporate America has ever had. And as a result, a variety of talent entering the workforce are first-generation professionals. The other reality? Most of these folks aren't learning what it means to navigate a majority white workplace in their college classes. Enter the Access Point, a live weekly web show within the Living Corporate Network that gives black and brown college students the real talk they need and likely haven't heard elsewhere. Every week, our hosts and special guests are dropping gems, so don't miss out. Check out the Access Point on livingcorporate.tv. Alfred, what's going on, man? Oh, it's all good. Everything is going really, really well. Um, you know, I only have two kinds of days. Either it's okay. excellent, excellent or amazing. Excellent is just a regular day. We just have to be excellent. And sure. Sometimes you have those tough days when you have to be amazing. So it's all good, though. You know, I'm going to tell you straight up, right? Like, inside baseball, man, I'm really, really excited to have you uh, on Living Corporate. As I look at uh, not only your profile, but the work that you're, you know, the work that you've been that you've been doing um, and leading at Black Enterprise for the last 13 years, I was like, oh, this is like, this is exactly the type of person. This is the person I want to talk to. Um, I'd love to understand a bit about, like, you know, your journey right now. Mm-hmm. Again, you've been at Black Enterprise for 13 years, but you had you've had a career, you know, before that. Like, talk to me about like, you know, your journey a bit and and how you got into into media. All right. Well, let, let me say, first of all, um, my LinkedIn is confusing. It looks like I've been at Black Enterprise for 13 years, but actually I joined Black Enterprise on March 4th, 1987. So it's going on 30, I'm losing count now, like 32 years, something like that. Uh, oh, yeah. congratulations. Thank you so much. Uh, and, and just wonderful journey. Not something I could have planned. I always say that, that nothing but God. I had, you know, I cooperated, but I didn't, I didn't plan it like this. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I, let me, let me start out a, a little bit. My, my real media journey began as an undergraduate at Rutgers college, Rutgers university. Um, my alma mater, I was born and raised on the Jersey shore. Um, went to the large state university, New Jersey. Um, and my degree, I actually studied no journalism. I did not know that that was the path I was going to be on, even though I was gifted at writing and communicating practically from childhood, but I was gifted as an artist um, by preschool. That was very apparent. And long story longer, I ended up majoring in art. 
Um, my degree is in studio art with a, with a minor in economics I've never thought I'd ever use. Like my original minor was psychology. Wow. I was my, when I graduated from college, it was uh, during a recession. And my college counselor advised me to change either my major or my minor to be more employable when I came out. And so I kept art as my major, changed my minor to economics um, to, to okay. you know, and that's how, but you know, who knew I was going to end up at a business publication, you know, five years later. Um, but anyway, graduated from, um, from Rutgers, but the, the beginning of my career was while a student at Rutgers, I was part of the black student leadership, black student movement at Rutgers, the anti-apartheid movement at the time, trying to get Nelson Mandela out of prison to show how long ago that was. Um, and as a result, and I'm skipping a lot of little, little turning points along the way, I became the editor-in-chief sure. of the Black Voice Cartagena, which was the weekly Black and Latino student newspaper on campus, and a really powerful voice uh, for for students of color at, at Rutgers University wide. And that year, running that publication, um, which I got dragged kicking and screaming to do, by the way, I didn't want to do it. I got kind of bullied. why? Why didn't you want to do it? Because it wasn't the path I was on. I was an art major. I, okay, now I'll tell you the story that many Rutgers um, people know because I've told them many times over the years as an alum. So I ended up, I started writing for the paper because I just like writing poetry and they had a poetry section. I was also mm-hmm. one of the undergrads as a freshman and sophomore that was very critical of the upper class black student leadership in terms of how they were handling this. I was part of an upstart generation mm-hmm. of kids who were like, we should, they should be doing differently. They're not really effective. And one of the people who I criticized, um, Ron Washington went on to become a, a, a fantastic attorney, um, challenged me mm. in, a, in a staff meeting at the paper that I just kind of went to just to be going to take over as a campus editor. And back then, the newspaper had, uh, you know, there's Rutgers campus, Cook campus, Bush campus, there's multiple campuses, and they had an editor okay. on each campus. Mm-hmm. And he basically put me okay. on the street, was like, you're talking all this smack, what are you going to do? And of course, I couldn't do something. No. Yeah. So I accepted it, panicked it, ran home, begged all my friends to write for me. Um, and my plan wow. was just to get through the year without embarrassing myself. And then I was going to go back. To okay. Life, That's a good goal. My art classes, do, you know, okay, I did. I saved face, got through the year. Well, <laughs> apparently I did a little bit too I'm well because the, my editor chief <laughs> came to me and said, I need you to take over the paper. And of course I was like, hell wow. to the low. I ain't doing it. <laughs> And her and the sister, um, Laura Gaines, it was Tanya um, Coates. That was, that's her married name. I can't remember. Tanya Davis was her maiden name. Tanya and Laura spent the whole summer basically beating me up to make, make me take this role. And finally, mm-hmm. I gave in, became editor-in-chief, under the condition that another student who's a, a, like a brother to me now, a godfather to one of my kids, Matthew Scott, would be my number two editor, not realizing that I was playing right into her hands because she already had him in mind to take over for me what I got done. So this is the first time somebody actually had a succession plan. That's the first time I ever saw something like that. Tanya Davis is a brilliant woman. Still to this day, I say that. And I credit my career because if she hadn't beat me up and bullied me into taking this role, long story short, after that year running the paper, that's all I wanted to do. I like, this is what I want to do for a living. Run a publication, talented people, wow. producing something important. Um, you're only, it's like, a, it's like football. I can football is my favorite team sport. So it's like, no matter how well you did the last game, it doesn't mean anything for the next game. Same thing with publishing, right. same thing with media. No matter how many, how great this podcast is, the next episode has got to start from scratch and be great. Hey, 100%. Year. 
So, so I, that all like appealed to me. So you know, I fought it kicking and screaming by the end of that year, I was like this, I don't, this feeling that I have, I got to duplicate that feeling and, and, uh, finished school. I, again, I had no journalism courses. I didn't study, study journalism at all. I couldn't chance to change my major in time. I was three fifths of the way through my mm. graduate curriculum, but I got all the off-campus experience I could. I became a columnist for the daily newspaper at Rutgers. I got a job off-campus laying out, and of course, layout doesn't mean anything today in, in today, <laughs> digital publishing, but back then you physically laid out and typeset uh, papers and things like that. And I got yeah. all the off out-of-classroom experience I could, and that's what I built my resume around and got my um, first newspaper job. Um, first near my hometown of Long Branch, New Jersey, and after Asbury Park Press, ultimately got a job um, at a black newspaper in Brooklyn that was then called Big Red News. Now it's the New York Beacon. Ran the Beacon, or well, Big Red, for two and a half years, fresh out of college. And there's another long story about how that happened. But by the time I was 24, yeah. I was a known um, journalist in New York, um, out of Brooklyn. Um, wow. Went from there to the Daily Challenge, the only black daily in New York City. That was then Brooklyn based. Went there, got, got my first magazine job as number two editor at only age 26. A modern black man that kind of put me on the map nationally. They cover stories on Miles Davis, the late Mayor Tom Bradley, um, actor Clifton Davis. I mean, it was a great platform for me as a young journalist. And from there, I got hired at Black Enterprise as an associate editor of the news section and worked my way up from there. Ran the magazine for 13 years. Ran the website for a little under three years, became the first editor-in-chief of BlackEnterprise.com, the first chief content officer when we obviously we've evolved as a multimedia company. Um, and today I'm senior vice president and executive editor at large, which basically means I do whatever Butch Graves, our CEO, tells me to do um, because I can kind of play off positions. What's incredible, there's so many, there's so many directions, right? Like, I, let, let me start with this. Mm-hmm. You talk about the fact that you're, you know, you're one of the first uh, black men or and, and and oftentimes I would imagine, if not the first, certainly one of the few. But you're in these positions of leadership in media, like talk to me about what did that look like to I would you know, it's interesting. Um, Colin Powell recently passed. Mm-hmm. And one of the, uh, the the statement in the obit and uh, one in the Washington Post obituary was he had a. He had a knack for exuding authority while keeping others at ease. And I'm curious, you know, did you and have you in your career, especially in operating in majority white spaces, ever feel the need to balance that the 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 demonstration of authority through leadership while also managing the insecurities uh, or or, uh, or fragilities of those around you? Well, let me let me first say that most of my job experience has been with predominantly black organizations. Uh, you know, again, I work with mm-hmm. black magazines and black newspapers. Most of my experience in the larger industry, though, as you know, was with white, you know, white professionals, because I mean, I was on the board of the American Society of Magazine Editors that never had more than two or three right. people of color at a time um, um, on that board. Um, I interacted with, mm-hmm. especially once I became editor in chief, a lot of my industry interactions, um, it was only me, um, the late uh, editor of Emerge magazine, George Curry, um, you know, the, whoever was editor of Essence at the time. There's only a small universe of black leaders in the industry. Um, so you were dealing with most right. of them. So, so, so I answer that question in that context. That said, the bug that I got bitten by as an undergraduate when I tell you my experiences with the black voice was not writing and editing. 
I again that first year I was a writer and editor. I was overseeing a small campus editor team, and I was good at it. I still am good at it, uh, but it, that's not what got me, like making me say this is what I want to do for my life. What it, what got me mm. was this fascination with leadership, and and coaching. Mm and motivating people to do what you want them to do when they had every reason not to do it or they didn't have an incentive to do it. So this is what I mean. And, and everything important I learned about leadership and motivation, I learned running this college paper. Because think about it. Students aren't paid. Hmm. They have right. deadlines to meet. They have all kinds of reasons to do what you, other than what they say they're going to do from their girlfriends, you know, parties. I got to go parties, home. Parties, yes. I got to stay for my exam. I got, you know, all, so you're just mm-hmm. saying, how do I motivate people to do, and, and uh, in my case, I'm proud to say myself, my predecessor, Tanya Davis, myself, my successor, Matthew Scott, and his successor, um, Lisa James, we, we had four years of the black student paper on campus being the best student paper on campus, period, because it wasn't just about getting mm-hmm. paper out. We wanted to be excellent. And I want to tell you, we didn't have the same resources mm-hmm. as our, our, you know, mainstream counterparts I, on campus. You don't have, you don't have to tell me that yeah, at all. hundred so, percent. So my, my thing was this this whole challenge of how do you um, uh, motivate these people week after week after week to not only get the paper out on time, but to do great work. And the first lesson I yes. learned was money's not a motivator. Money's a minimum requirement mm. for your job, but you're not, you can get compliance with pay, but you can't get excellence with pay. So the long story mm. short is what fascinated me was this idea of how do you get people to perform week after week after week and you learn lessons about motivation so i've always had this fascination even when i was a kid and i didn't connect that dot until my career started that like mm. i love playing basketball i love playing sports in particular football is my favorite sport but of course basketball is the most accessible so you play basketball of course but i'm not right. for basketball bro. i'm like five six five seven um but well back then i was like five but five, you five, but you but you solid though i wasn't solid then <laughs> Back in the day, I mean, you know, now my my hobby bodybuilding now, so I'm a lot more solid now. But back right. then, I was like 110 pounds, five foot five. Okay. And but I would play pickup basketball growing up in my neighborhood, and since I knew I was a liability, and you know, when you win, you stay on the court, right? So my thing was like, how can I pick a team where I could stay on the court? And I got really good <laughs> at picking the team based on skill sets, and I didn't connect that dot until later. So I can stay on the court. Like I, my goal is like, you just don't yeah. be a liability. Do your best not to be a liability. Contribute right. where you can. But if you pick the right kind of team and put it together right, you can stay on the court all day, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I had this fascination. And then by the time I got a little older, you know, and again, I'm, I'm somebody who was, I came out of a football household. So we were an NFL household. And by the time okay. I was like 13 or 14, I was like, how is it that you have X number of teams, you know, 30-something teams? And, the, and you can you can reliably divide the any league, but I'm just use the NFL into three groups. There's a group of teams that never win. There's a group of teams that seem to always win, and then there's this group in the middle that kind of they get to the playoffs. They sometimes they get to touch a championship, but they never, you know, build it. And you turn over, yeah, yeah. Over. They're in the middle. They they're not they're not they're not horrible. But they're not, you know, the Yankees or they're not, you know, you know, the, the Patriots or, you know. And so my thing is, I was a little bit fascinated by one of those elements that you can have the exact same talent pool. But certain teams win and certain teams lose and certain teams are in the middle. 
And my, so I've always had a fascination with coaching and leadership because that is the difference. Mm. How do you build a winning culture? How do you get people to do it because they want to do it? How do you get them to run through a wall because they want to run through a wall? How do you get them to meet a deadline because they want to meet a deadline? And all of that came together when I was running my college paper, um, when I subsequently ran the paper I ran in Brooklyn for two years, um, and then ultimately came to Black Enterprise. And that's what fascinates me. You know, how do you get people to do excellent work? And how do you get them to do it as a team? Because it's one thing to get an individual yeah. to do excellent work. It's another thing to get 9, 10, 15, 20, 30 people who all have different agendas, different motivations, different things they care about, different personalities to operate in such a way that they all line up to do something great. And then in media, it's not doing something great one time. It's like sports. Um, there's a, yeah. a quote from, uh, I think, Dallas Cowboy, old school Dallas Cowboy, who said, if the Super Bowl is so important, why are we going to play it again next year? Meaning even when you win, mm. it's only important when you win. trying to get back. Then when you come back the next right. year, nobody cares. You got to climb that mountain all over again. Yeah, it's, all, it's a new year, yeah. 100%. You know, so it's, I am fascinated by this idea of how do you get people, you know, and, and now it expands to everything, whether it's entrepreneurs, even your kids. How do you get them to, to want yeah. to excel when they have every reason not to? Like, this is hard. I'm tired. This is boring. I don't want to do this. I could be doing something else. How do you get and, and that that's what so when you talk when you talk about um Colin Powell, who's a, a brilliant, obviously a brilliant leader, his brilliance was in how do you get men, and now you're talking about in war where their lives are on the line. How do you get them to run toward the, the bullets? How do you get them to run toward the enemy? Right. How do you get them and that's that's what fascinates me. That that that's what drives me today as a mentor, as a coach, as a as a as a manager. That's what leadership is about. Getting people to want to do it when they have every reason not to. You know, it's it's interesting you talk because especially in this context of media, you know, I so Alfred, you don't know this, but people that know me as we were like building living corporate, you know, I said, man, what does it look like to make a black enterprise an accessible, digitized black enterprise? Mm-hmm. Like that was one of the main questions I had. Mm-hmm in building living corporate, right? Like what does it look like to take the profiles and spotlights of black and brown people and have really frank conversations about the things that you're just not going to talk about in majority white media spaces. And, you know, it's interesting because I think about living corporate and I think about even just like this current age um, and just, just black media, right? Like, and how, and, and, and it's how the permute, the permutations that black media has gone through, and I'm curious to get your perspective. And I, I just, I, I'm not trying to like be a fanboy. It's just, I, but I'm genuinely like curious about what is your perception of media today? You think about technology and how it's changed over the three decades um, that you've been in the space. Mm-hmm. And if I can, if I can push you a little bit further, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, I'm going to let you go. Is as you think about Black Enterprise, where do you see Black Enterprise going? as we look at where media is today. And when I say for the audience, when I say media is today, I'm talking about the fact that, you know, they're talking about content is much more, um, it's flat. It's much flatter. It's it's more accessible. Uh, You have different mediums of between podcasting and webinars and blogging and uh, even different paid and prescription uh, subscription platforms like Patreon and even Apple and other places are doing different types of uh, paid subscription models. I'm just curious, as you look at the entire landscape, like I love just hear you wax poetic on 
how you how you're feeling about it and where black enterprise has played and will continue to play a role. Well, I'm happy to say uh, first, let me first pay tribute to our founder, our late founder, Earl Graves Sr., who passed away, not of COVID, but he did pass away during the pandemic on April 6th of 2020. Um, and, and, and we were celebrating our 50th anniversary as a media company, as a, uh, a then magazine in 2020. Um, we're continuing to celebrate. We're actually going to be doing a major uh, tribute event um, next year, um, you know, tri- paying tribute to our founder. And I, I want to say that because the two things that will carry you through, and I think is carrying black media brands that are thriving today, is culture and mission. Culture is how you do what you do, and mission is why you do what you do. And as I say that in the context of black enterprise, that our mission has not changed from day one. It's about empowering black people to advance professionally, entrepreneurially, and financially with the goal of building overall wealth. That's that's the mission day one. And it's important to focus on the mission. What I think that black enterprise has done well, and when I say done well, not has been easy. And this I credit to our current CEO, Earl Butch Graves Jr., who's the son of the founder, who's been running the companies for the last 15 years, is helping us to remember that the platform is not more important than the mission. So I already know I've been in the game long enough to remember when you physically pasted up newspapers. Um, I've yes. got tools, I got tools around here that if I showed you what they were, you'd be like, what is that for? Why do you need an exacto knife? Why do you, <laughs> you need a, why do you need a piker ruler? Why do you need to measure the type? Yeah. Uh, that's how long I've been in the game. Um, so Amen. <laughs> now today, Black Enterprise is the number one black digital media brand in the country with more than eight million unique visitors a month. And and, and our VP of Digital is, is confidently assuring us that it'll probably be close to the 10 million by two, two, um, 2022. Ooh. How do you go from being a magazine to, you know, and a magazine company for 35 years, you know, actually close to 40 years, then because the marketplace demands it, you got to shift. And as you and I both know, a lot of black media brands didn't make it. And my, and my right. opinion, 100%. many of them didn't make it including at least one or two prominent ones because they refuse to accept that the magazine industry is dying. Print was dying. You know, print wasn't dying because somebody was killing it. Print was dying because new technologies created new methods of delivery. And to produce a great magazine was still possible, but it was no longer profitable. So how I tell people is that so at some point, you recognize that the best music in the world on vinyl is not going to sell. It's not because the music is right. not anymore. It's on vinyl. And people that medium, yeah. The CDs. People had graduated to MP3s, and now people graduated to streaming music. The music is still the same. Mm-hmm. And for Black Enterprise, and I'll extrapolate that, or extrapolate that to Black Media, our mission, our respective missions for why Black Media exists is still the same. But if you fall in love with one particular way of delivering the content and that con- that way of delivery is no longer accepted by consumers or supported by the advertisers and sponsor that paid for all mm-hmm. this. They paid for media since, you know, <laughs> etching on stone. Somebody paid. Word. For then you're going to you're going to struggle and you're going to go out of business. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. the transition was easy. Butch Graves, in my opinion, again, the current CEO 
navigated a much more difficult path over the, these last 15 years than his father navigated in 1970 when he launched the magazine. You would think it would have been harder back in the day. So I don't, I don't want to make it sound like any of this was easy or simple and we were geniuses, we were geniuses. A lot of it was like, can we just survive till tomorrow? Can we just <laughs> pay payroll this month? Can we just survive? To, you know, we, we have the right people. Culture change is hard. Changing people out, changing people's minds about how things should be done is hard. Um, you know, I've seen some brilliant journalists come and go in every platform, not just, um, you know, magazines. I know people who are out of television because they couldn't accept the impact of social media. They couldn't they couldn't adapt to, you know, engaging on Instagram. They couldn't they couldn't adapt because they were like, no, we make vinyl records. We make the vinyl record. That's right. And like, nobody wants vinyl records. I don't care what you put on it. So so my thing is. I'm, I have a lot of positive optimism about black media because I don't think of black media as just Ebony Essence and Black Enterprise. I think black right. media is podcasts. I think it's the griot. I think it's, um, you know, there are people who are great, you know, do great work on some journalistically sound work. There's a challenge with everybody being able to publish is a, a, lot, a lot of people aren't media sound, journalistically sound. So you got to work right. through a lot of crap right. to get to the good stuff. But there are a lot of people who do great right. work on all these platforms. And then we got, you know, streaming, you got you got um Fox Soul, which carries a lot of black enterprise content. You got people doing things that still serve the mission of giving black people a voice in the media. It's messier, it's more fragmented um, than it was when you could count on basically three black magazines and a black newspaper in every town. You know, that's back in the day. But it's still right. there. And people the fact that you're doing what you're doing. Um, you know, it's just as important as the fact that Black Enterprise is still doing what it's, it's doing in year 51. Um, and, and so, you know, Man. Black media is not gone. It's changed. You got to look at what Roland Martin is doing, you know, with uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered. And another person like me who went from newspapers to, he's, he's navigated that and leaned into, I don't need to be working at a Black newspaper. I mean, he ran um, one of the top new Black newspapers in the Chicago Defender. Um, I don't I don't need to do that. I don't need to be on TV one anymore. There's nothing wrong with being on TV one, but he leaned into right. as a as a as a as a black media entrepreneur from day one. That was Roland Martin's part from day one. I've known him since he first got out of college. He's like, no, these these platforms, we need to grab hold of them because these are the new quote unquote black newspapers. And and we'll be obsolete if we won't if we don't graduate to that, but still stay true to the mission of what black media exists for. You know, it's interesting, um, Alfred, like, you, you know, we talk about like the future of media and you said something there. You talked about the fact that like, you know, everybody can publish now, like, you know, WordPress is, you know, damn near free. Um, so, you know, you know, any, it's not a challenge. Um, I'm curious when you talk about that journalistic rigor or just like being media savvy or understanding. What do you think the future of that is so that we can still have quality as we think about like the next 15 years? I think what's going to happen is because what really determines what quality accepted or not accepted is the consumers. Mm. And we're still in mm -hmm. an age right now. And I don't know how long it's going to last. Maybe it'll last forever. Or maybe it's always been this way. There's only a certain percentage of the population that are really critical, critical thinkers when it comes to media. Um, you know, the vast majority of people eat what they're fed. And I don't think that that's more true mm -hmm. now than it was when it was newspapers. 
a magazine. You know, I don't think it's more true. I just think everything happens faster because of the viral nature of information and news. But I think you have a critical mass of people who just eat what they're fed and believe everything they're told. And these are people that look at strangers on YouTube videos and take it as fact. And it just, it doesn't, so. It's so scary. You know, it's scary, but it's true. But those are the same people that pick yeah, up the, uh, you know, the tabloid at the supermarket stand that said aliens had landed on the planet. And they're like, see, it says so right yeah. here. That's true. So that el- that that element has always existed in our in human human humankind. It's just that now, because of the nature of social media and the power of algorithms, the impact is so much bigger. And that's what we found out the hard way. We're still finding out when we're talking about mm-hmm. do you vaccinate or don't you vaccinate, and why. And this is the, yeah. you know, the misinformation and the disinformation now comes in huge tidal waves, and not everybody has the the critical thinking, the objectivity um, to be able to say, I need to determine the source and make credible decisions about whether this is credible news information or not. So I'm not saying, suggesting there's no problem. I'm suggesting the problem has always existed. And, and my belief is that over time, the quality stuff will come out. Over time, the truth will still stand as the truth. The facts will still stand as the facts. There may be some people that will never, ever believe it. <laughs> and, and so I think Word. it's still worth doing our best um, as professional journalists trying to operate according to a standard about what's, how you report things, what's true, what's not true. How do you verify what's true? How do you admit that you can't verify, that you don't know? Um, I study statistics. I'm really big on the nothing following the numbers. Um, when somebody said they said something, I want to know who they are. You know, now you have people just believe yes. they heard it. They're like, oh, person said doctor said such and such. I heard it. You know, in my family, I drive them crazy because whenever they say that stuff, I'm like, well, who? Like, where'd you get that from? <laughs> I don't know. I just read something. I was like, yeah. I don't, don't, yeah, don't come at me. With that. You know, you, you want me to take this as gospel <laughs> truth and you don't know where it came from. You don't know if the person you got it from, where they got it from. Um, you know, and so right. it takes a tremendous amount of discipline for even those of us in the media business because we're under pressure. We're under pressure to get eyeballs, mm-hmm. pressure to deliver bodies and eyes to advertisers and sponsors. We fight it too. We've always fought it. You know, how much pressure, mm-hmm. how much, how, how aggressively are we going to report on a story that we haven't totally checked out because we don't want to get beat on the story? You know, that's why you see a lot of legitimate news outlets aren't getting burned because. They're like, we got to get there first and then finding out what we're actually wrong. And of course, we as black people pay a high price for that because it's always on the front page when we get accused and on the, you know, 100% back page where it's like, oh, oops, no, it actually, actually, no, it wasn't it exactly at all, you know. And, and so I, I spent a lot of time, and I'm not saying I always get it right either, wrestling with that. Mm-hmm. And I still stick with, and I'm including mm-hmm. even what I do on social media. Like, I'm not going to retweet mm-hmm. something. I'm not going to repost something unless I've made a reasonable effort to say, is this really credible? Is this really true? Where did they get this from? Because I know I have enough influence in the following that if I post it, I'm going to reinforce the misinformation just because it came from me. So, you know, it's a long way around saying it ain't easy, but we got we still got to fight for this idea that there's a way to report credible information. Um, and, and I think that over time, let me put it this way, because black enterprise, and again, we're not immune to all these forces that I've, we didn't get to 8 million uniques without, you know, 
oh, we got to get that, you know, we got to get that information out yeah. grow so that we can deliver the impressions that our advertisers and sponsors want. We're, we're subject to the same forces mm-hmm. as everybody else. That said, mm-hmm. um, and I, again, I credit our CEO, Butch Graves. I credit our current chief content officer, Derek T. Dingle, who is like a brother to me. He, he came up in the organization just the way I did with the idea that when all is said and done, both both readers, viewers, sponsors, whoever it is, can look at the Black Enterprise name and say, well, Black Enterprise is credible. That that's still the most important thing we have in the marketplace. Yeah. The minute people start thinking, uh, can't really trust what Black Enterprise is putting out there, then everything that we do that makes our business yeah. work falls over. And, and, and I just think in time, that's what happens. Either, either you're credible and you can build a business around that and, and build and you can walk around with your head held high saying, yes, I work for, um, you know, living corporate. And people say, yeah, living corporate is the real deal. Or people will say, yeah, that living corporate, mm-hmm. it, it kind of don't, don't really smell right, you know. But you got to admit there's a lot of media brands, and, and I don't mean just black ones, that don't quite smell right, but they still make money. No, it's it's true, Alfred. Like, even when you think, like, and so it's, it's interesting to that point about platforms, publishing companies, media companies, media platforms, however you want to, you mm-hmm. know, however you want to phrase it. There, there is a lot of activity out there, and sometimes it does seem like there's this, um, the push is for clicks and dollars, and not necessarily about like the actual inherent value of the stories being told. Not even sometimes. I mean, yeah, I, I think, yeah, well, I won't say the majority, but I'll say a significant proportion. That's what it's. That's all it's yeah. about. But again, but when you were talking about publications like those I talked about in supermarket tabloids, that was true for them too. They're not, they're not, they're like, no, we want to write whatever and publish whatever we can that's going to make people pick this thing up off the, you know, when they go past, when they're shopping and pay for their food. It, again, it's just on steroids now. Yeah. But it's always been there. I like the fact that you, you brought that historical context to it because it is easy to think that like all of what we're seeing right now is new, but it's not like, just technology, just the technology. Excel- has accelerated and expanded everything. Yes. But you're 100% right. Yellow journalism has been a thing, you know, and forever, making like money for off a of, long time. And making money in multiple ways off of denigrating and distorting the images of black people has been a thing forever. In mainstream, supposedly respected 100%. media outlets, we're still fighting that battle mm-hmm. about how we're portrayed. If we're portrayed, how we're portrayed. How we reported, and and that battle's not changed because right. the, the the predominantly white predominant white maleness of newsrooms and television decision makers, and now we know even on tech platforms, even in the new, new technologies, the decision makers are still predominantly white, predominantly male, and now we have another layer that we got to fight in media and elsewhere: algo, algorithmic bias and racism. Let's talk about it. So. That that's the next thing I was about to ask you is like so living corporate is bootstrap independent media, independent black owned media, right? And I feel like the algorithms have to be my biggest gatekeeper. And that's common, right? Even mm-hmm. there's other platforms. I'm gonna shout out Mogul Millennial and like mm-hmm. there's other platforms that are younger bootstrapped organizations telling black stories. It seems like this algorithm, it seems almost like, I don't want to say it's like the boogeyman, but it does feel like this just 
monster. And I'm curious, like, what is what does it look like? Eat like how does how has Black Enterprise had to challenge or push back against the algorithm and media? Because this it blows my mind when I see huge. Let's just let's I'll use a simple example like YouTube. So YouTube might be somebody with like two million subscribers, but the algorithm has it so that their videos might only have like three thousand views, but you have two thousand, you have two million subscribers. Like, so I'm curious. I'm curious when it comes to like Black Enterprise, like what have y'all, what experience have y'all had in engaging algorithms on social media to get the marketing out there, and what have been some of the lessons learned in that? Well, first of all, again, I'm give credit to another Graze, our third generation of Graze's in the company. There's our social media um, manager, Tristan Graze, which is oldest daughter, who's done mm. a great job with our social media, really undermanned. <laughs> she needs help, but um, for us over the last uh, several years since so she's been with the company, I think it's been like four or five years now. You know, she seemed like just yesterday, but that's another story. When you've been at BE as long as I have, everybody seems like they just got here yesterday. Um, but, but here's the deal. it's not about the algorithm that's affecting your particular media outlet. And I'm, gonna do, and I'm doing a lot of mm-hmm. work on this because I do some work for the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. And a lot of the algorithmic bias is affecting everything. And, and for your audience, it's not sure what it's about. Remember when, when, when tech first became so dominant, the idea was that it was going to level the playing field because technology is race neutral. What we're finding mm-hmm. out is that technology is not race neutral because guess who's doing the programming? <laughs> you know, guess who's mm-hmm. writing these algorithms? Guess what data they're basing it on? They're basing it on con- corrupt data. They're, mas- they're basing it on biased assumptions and they're building these algorithms. So that's why, and, and again, this is not new. We always complained about how Nielsen measured the ratings of black radio stations versus white radio stations and how black audiences didn't get the same value from advertisers as white audiences did. Same thing with um, no Nielsen was television, I think. Arbitron was radio. Mm-hmm. Every measuring tool that measures audiences have biases against the value of black audiences. And what we're finding out is the same thing with algorithms that measure the value of the traffic that you could get, the credit, who gets to see your views, who gets who gets shown what, and then how can you translate that to numbers that you can take for an advertiser and get make sure your audience gets the same dollar per eyeball that a white audience might get. Um, right, but 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 again, this is this is a larger issue because algorithms are used to determine everything from sentencing in criminal cases to who gets a mortgage and who doesn't, to mm. who gets a job and who doesn't. So once again, every time we're told this time we got it right, we got all the bias out, and black people say okay, okay, then we find out oh, oh man, sorry, we we thought we got it all out, <laughs> and it's not all out. And this right. result, to your, your to your original question. We as black media outlets have to constantly fight agencies. If we got clients that are believing what we do, then the clients can be allies. But but if they're clients that don't believe what we do, then they're not on our side. And we're trying to make the case for why is that media platform that gets the same number of, of, of audience, whether it's eyeballs or whatever, you're paying them $100 per, per, per pound, but you only pay me 30 and the only thing is that that right. black audiences are undervalued, but it's not undervalued. If you correct for every other measure, income, education, why is my black audience still getting paid? <laughs> I'm getting paid less for delivering that mm-hmm. than my white counterpart who's delivering an audience that may even be weaker 
in terms of income and education or whatever the amount of difference. But you're you're, you're mm-hmm. automatically paying them a premium. And you know, I wish I could say I had an easy answer, but the, the answer that we do is, um, first of all, our CEO Butch Graves is very um, uh, vocal in, in 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 talking to, in particular, the advertising community and clients. Now he's at a space where he can talk at upper levels. He he, he rubs shoulders with the heads of media organizations, the head of these top agencies. So it's a blessing to us that he's able to do that. But it's not enough to be able to get in the room right. with him. He has to say something. And he carries on the mm-hmm. legacy of, of his father. His father said they didn't invite him to the room because they ran out of smart white people. If you're going to be in the room with a black person, your job is to make things better for black people and to say something when it's unfair. So a lot of this is, right. um, you know, and then, you know, we got this whole age of the new age of DEI um, post George Floyd. Um, our CEO, Butch yeah. is being very vocal and very bold about challenging the advertising community, challenging the agency community to say, you're saying the right things, but you're still doing the things that are devaluing black media. You know, where is this money being spent? How much are you spending? If you really value black audiences, why are you not paying a premium to reach those audiences? And I happen to think that's going to have a trickle down effect because he's not just speaking for black enterprise. He speaks for all black media. If, if living corporate delivers an audience that's equal to or better than a similar um, you know, podcast or webcast show that deliver that has a, and you got the same profile, why would you get a smaller sponsorship or advertising dollar? hundred percent. Whether it's programmatic or whether it's uh, actual partnership, than your counterpart. And, 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 you know, right. in my experience, both first person and second person uh, or third party experience is that there's a lot of, uh, oh, 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 is that, we didn't really, you know, there's no real good explanation. Mm. And, and yeah, they just get caught. They, yeah, they get caught. And then with the algorithms now that, I mean, it's a new thing, this whole, this thing, algorithmic racism. And, and and we're not prepared as a society yet to deal with it. But how do you undo the algorithms that drive Facebook and YouTube and 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 determine which which pieces of content get visibility and value and which ones are devalued or don't even see the light of day? And and you see so you see that everywhere. But TikTok, when you see black creators on TikTok who are driving the trends on TikTok but not getting paid the money that in non-black that black people made TikTok what it is, right? Right. Black, people, black Twitter, 100%. Twitter, what it is, you know, uh, I, I won't say that for Facebook necessarily, but Twitter and TikTok. And I would argue for sure. I would argue Instagram, too, in my opinion. 100 percent. 100 percent. You see and how it's used. Um, and, you know, black creators like but remember, look, back in Motown days and record industry, black creators created all the great stuff, but they weren't the ones making the money. So we, you know, we got to get focused on that. No, you're absolutely right. You know, to that point around like black creators, like that continues to like coming on these platforms, that continues to be a pattern, right? Like, so, and you know, I'll take it a a little bit further back and say, you know, before there was TikTok, there was Vine. Yes. And Vine, right? Same. It was really, frankly, the same platform. And so, you know, a lot of folks that we're now seeing on like different shows and stuff, those white folks, those were Vine stars. Yes. Or they were, they came from that era. But then a lot of those black folks who were really popping on Vine, they're still here, but they're on other platforms like All Deaf Digital or um, they're on different, they're not, they are not, they do not have the same access to dollars and revenue that their white counterparts had, despite the fact that they are the ones that really made that 
platform blow up. Yeah. And then to your 100% agreed on your point with these dan- with the TikTok dancers and comedians and stuff, you know, um, black folks are not the ones seeing the return on that. You know, another example, I'm, I'm curious, you know, as media continues to grow, I'm noticing that happens over and over. You said Twitter. I'll give you another one. It's Clubhouse, right? So Clubhouse um, started um, and 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 they had an opportunity. So they say they had an opportunity to invest, whatever. And 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 they weren't really super interested in the the black storytelling or experience or really really catering to black users. But really, when you look at the explosion of growth for Clubhouse uh, last summer, it was because of these black celebrities. I remember and black influencers too. So yes. even if they weren't, you know, I would consider like Living Corporate like a micro influencer, right? So they were bringing on the, those types of creators which then helped galvanize traffic to their platform, you know. But they're, they're running a whole playbook, man. I mean, when you think of new television networks, I mean, I don't, you're pretty young, but whether it's w, the WB or the CW. Yes, it's like, yes. They always start yes. out with a whole slate. We talk about Moesha. It was all it was, black. All yes. black. They get, yes. they get their audience established, and getting this audience established establishes their credibility as an advertising and sponsor outlet. Then after year four or five, well, I usually use year five because it takes five years to get a series of it's a syndication. And after they get that, mm-hmm. that, then all of a sudden there's fewer until none black people on those. T- and then you add that again, this is this is a compounding thing because where do you get your black sitcom stars from when sitcoms was a thing? A lot of them were right. comedians. So even though we know right. That the baddest black comedians generate, black baddest comedians generation after generation. Usually, if you got the top ten, seven out of the ten are black. Who gets the sitcoms? Right. How many of them? How many? You know, mm-hmm. we, can, we can name them on one hand. How many okay comedians? One hundred percent sitcoms where the superstar comedians might get a shot. Might get a shot. One hundred percent. So one hundred percent. So it, it goes back to the the thing we've been struggling against our whole time in this country, which is, in this case, the commercial, which is what, what matters to me, the commercial undervaluation of Black life, Black contributions. We can profit from it, but we don't necessarily want to pay for it. You know, the, the last thing I'll say on this um, is, it's, it's that last part we want to probably don't want to pay. It's curious, and you you alluded to it already, the murder of George Floyd, you know, all of a sudden now Black storytelling is back in vogue. And I'm, you know, and I, you 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 talked about my age. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call you old, but I know that you've seen this cycle play over and over. This is the first time that um that being black is in style, right? And black stories are in style. But I will say, like to affirm your point, it has been curious, like the level of attention that like Living Corporate has received and and other black podcasts and media space has received since George Floyd's murder is notably higher and and different than it was before right so like you know before people say oh this is like they would call like the idea of centering and amplifying black and brown folks at work or Mm -hmm. black perspectives in the profession they would call that niche but now they're like oh this is really needed it's like well no it was needed before right uh you just didn't right you didn't understand that um and then at the same time which is really insidious is Despite the fact that there is a high understanding or su- some sudden recognition of the need when the brands come, and I'm not going to put nobody on blast because we've had some great partnerships. Right, so I'm going to be clear, like shout out Pfizer, Live Ramp. We've had some great partnerships. 
But there have been some other brands that have engaged us and you ask about a budget and they're like, oh, we thought we'd do this for exposure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it, it, right? Let me say up front, first of all, it's hard, even when people are willing or when there's a social willingness, it's hard to change cultural and it's hard to change thinking. Um, so you have, mm. we, we all know in the medium, like we don't have to drop a whole bunch of names, but we know those brands that have been at this game a long time and actually know what they're doing when they're trying to reach out to black people. Like they really know, they've been at it, you yes. know, the, you know, the, the chase, yes. the Morgan chases, the, the nationwide, yes. the, you know, um, some of the car companies, like they, but they've been doing, they've been at this for many of them, 40 or 50 years. Now you have a whole right. new generation of companies coming to the game. I would say they're under 20 years old. That, that to them, this is a revelation. Oh, wait, really? There's racism and yes. like we need to yes. do better? Systemic racism. Oh, my cousin, my pearls. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> so they never done anything. And so they do one little thing and they think they should get an NAACP image award because they don't, they don't. So, you know, so I know what you're talking about, man. But, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Here's the thing. Here's what makes it different. We've seen this mm. movie before. Hmm. What makes it different is one, I think we finally reached a critical mass of black people inside, let's say, corporate America that makes it harder to for them to mm -hmm. run the game of they say the right thing on the front end and then they kind of don't really do anything on the back end. There's more people inside mm -hmm. the organizations. There's more there's not only more black people and people of color inside, I'll, I'll use the term corporate America in general. There's also more more sensitized non-black people inside mm -hmm. of saying, well, what are we doing here? And when is this? Going? So that's happened. The second thing that's happened is that we are better able to hold large organizations accountable as black people, whether it's social media or traditional media, than our parent. And this, this is the other good thing about the evolution of black media. You can say what you, I mean, we had some of it in the past. You know, the Emmett Till disaster and, and, and atrocity couldn't have brought to, been brought to light without black newspapers and then Jet making that, you know, so we've had situations where we've been able to leverage and move action because we were able to hold up a mirror. Now, uh, corporations like, talking about, get, you got black Twitter, you got, you know what I'm saying? They're like, they don't want yeah. troubles. Like, oh, we, there's, it's immediate. So now I think mm. it's a little harder. It's not, it's not impossible. It's a little harder for a corporation to say, oh, we're going to do this and then do something other than that and not pay a price in the marketplace for it. And that, yeah. that's another reason why what you do and what we do is important. Yeah, we're doing it in part to uplift and encourage and, 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 and uh, advocate advancement for black people. But part of it is somebody has got to look at all these these uh, pledges that have been made in the past year and say, oh, that's it. That's yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to say that's the thing. It's, it's accountability. It's awareness. Right. Because um, there's, there's there's plenty of conversations that are fairly mealy mouthed right now, Alfred, Alfred around diversity, equity, inclusion, and so that's not the differentiator in my opinion. Differentiator is the frank, honest, and accountable dialogues to make sure people are doing what they say they're going to do. I'm only looking at two things, man. The dialogue, like you said, the frank. Just be honest with me if you ain't going to do it. You know, the, the, don't give me the whole. You know, we yes. value all people and we got to yes. come together. It's diversity. The yes. we, you know, be honest. And all the thing I'm looking at is where the money's going. That's all I think I'm looking. Amen. At. Where's the money going? Is is you know? Now I can get sometimes your every initiative is not going to work, but if your initiative is not moving the needle economically, in terms of advancement in corporations, in terms of money being spent with black-owned businesses, 
in, ter in terms of the economic health of black communities. Mm -hmm. I don't care that you gave free sneakers to, you know, you know, I don't you know care. the kind of stuff they do, you know, that yeah, you know, <laughs> it's performative and it looks really good. Symbolic. Great press release, really symbolic, but it's not going to move the needle. And, and again, our 100%. main focus is the black enterprise has always been, but it's been more important now, is closing the racial wealth gap. Because when it's all said and done, that's what it's really about. It's like, when do we get to the point of equality and parity in resources, opportunities, and ownership in America? We're decades away, if we're fortunate, maybe centuries. Uh, but if you're not moving the needle on that, I'm not necessarily impressed. You know, And uh, it's not going to happen in our lifetimes, but it's going to start happening. I love it. I 100% agree. Last thing I'm, I'll ask is, Last word for me, I'll, I'll give you the last, and I'll give you the last thing here is, what are you excited about right now with Black Enterprise? What do you want folks to be checking out right now? Oh, we're excited because again, our, our digital brand and our digital platform is stronger than ever. The other thing is that what we were, what we were brilliant at um, before the pandemic is, is doing our national live networking events, most prominently Women of Power Summit, um, the Entrepreneur Summit, and Black Men Excel, which is coming up. Um, our challenge mm -hmm. in the pandemic year was not only how do we stay alive, <laughs> but in this case, how do we convert those into virtual events that sponsors still want to support, um, that still serves our audience because that's the way we get our audience connected to move the ball in their own lives and their own businesses. And we found out we were really, really good at doing virtual conferences. And so the next big one, and which you already know I want you to be a part of, is our next Black Men Excel yes. Summit, which will be virtual. We've been doing it for about, this is, I think, our seventh one, but this will be our second virtual one. That's on November 18th and November 19th. And simply put, it is the premier leadership and excellence development of leadership and excellence of Black men. It's, it's, it's about Black men in corporate America, Black men in leadership, Black male excellence. It's not what are we going to do to save Black men, though those events are important. This is... What are we mm -hmm. going to do to continue to elevate and, and, and highlight the excellence that black men have always delivered despite uh, how can we equip you to be stronger? How can we equip you to be better? We do everything from mental wellness to advancing in corporate America to uh, taking advantage of, of, of wealth and investing opportunities. So that's happening November um, 17th to 18th, two over two days. Um, we got one-on-one -on -one conversation with Chance the Rapper and our CEO, Butch Graves. Um, it's, it's, going to be, it's going to be a great event. It's a great event every year. Um, so that's the big thing that's coming up right away. But if you go to blackenterprise.com, you'll see a whole, our whole slew. We do virtual town halls um, that are that are moderated by Bakari Sellers, the CNN um, analyst. And, and um, yeah, shout out to Sellers. Yeah. Um, we, we got um, Women of Power. The Women of Power proper, the live event is coming back um, in Las Vegas in, in February. That'll be our first live event since the pandemic. But we're doing town halls and virtual summits every month. You just got to go to blackenterprise.com and stay on top of that. But brothers, sisters, you're welcome too. But brothers, you want to be at Black Men Excel. So go right now. You can register. There's like almost a thousand brothers already registered. And we haven't even been pushing it like that yet uh, because we got other events that we're pushing. But Black Men Excel is the real deal. And you definitely want to be there. And that's November 18th and 19th. And you can register right now. Thank you so much. And y'all, look. The link's in the show notes. So make sure you check it out. Black Men Excel, I will be there, be in the building. It's going to be a great time. I'm really excited. Last thing I'll say is, you know, Black Enterprise has always been an inspiration to me. I grew up coming up, 
mostly just really me and my mom. And so I recall being in the barbershop or actually being in the in the salon when I was a kid and there would be a magazine rack. And on the magazine rack, there would be a copy of the latest black enterprise. And I would see some black man on the front with a nice suit or a woman and just see someone who looks like me in this clear position of authority and frankly, like success. And, and I want you to know that uh, the legacy that black enterprises has, has had continues to be an inspiration for me and thousands of other black folks and brown folks around the world. So thank you so much for your effort. Thank you for your labor. Uh, thank you for your service. And uh, you're a friend of the show. And I know I'm going to see you at Black Man Excel, but I hope I see you back in Living Corporate, too. Oh, no doubt, man. You, you got it. And remember, we're doing the same work. Uh, you're, 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 uh, Living Corporate is just a big part of Black Enterprises' legacy as anything. And we recognize that. So, oh, so it's about the true measure of a successful institution or person is the capacity to inspire and replicate yourself. And so when we look at see platforms mm. like Living Corporate, and, and we, we know our founder, Earl Graves, is smiling down because... We, we got to replicate our successes so that we can continue to move the needle um, toward toward what's right and good for us as a people and what's really right and good for the world. So um, salute to you. I'm glad we had this connection. It won't be our last conversation. Clearly, we need more now. Yeah. <laughs> we ran through that. Clearly. Uh, so uh, <laughs> listen, thanks, man. I really appreciate being invited and, and looking forward to coming back. All right, now. Talk to you soon. My pleasure. Take care now. And we are back. Yo, again, major shout out to Black Enterprise. Y'all heard about the event, all right? It's coming up really soon. I'm going to be a moderator. I will be there, all right? I will be on the panel. I'll be, you know what I'm saying, moving and shaking. Y'all going to see me moving around, talking, making jokes. I might even bring out the soundboard, drop a couple air horns or whatever. I don't know. We'll just have to see what's going on. The point is, I'm going to be there, all right? So click the link in the show notes. Make sure you sign up. And just learn more about Black Enterprise. Like, you know, Black Enterprise is not some relic, right? Like, they are still keeping up with the times. And I don't know, man. I was... <laughs> this is an audio-only podcast. We dropped some videos for other for our other content, right? But I definitely almost blushed when he, like, associated Living Corporate and said, like, you know, we... When he spoke about us, he, talk, he talked about Living Corporate as part of this collective that was really inspirational to me so again shout out to um, alfred shout out to black enterprise and listen if you haven't already tell somebody about living corporate all right the way that we continue to grow the way we continue to be on these lists the way we continue to get uh pub and recognition is straight up five star ratings on apple Podcasts. it's one of the ways right? that's not the only way but i'm saying like for real like just show us a little love we really appreciate it it's free it take you i don't know like 15 seconds to do it if you have an iphone you know what i'm saying and then look if you don't have an iphone i'm not saying don't share the podcast i'm saying share it like still you still have something to do too go to your little media player press share and then flip it on over all right all right y'all uh listen you owe it to yourself. You owe it to yourself to the to be the best version of yourself every day. You owe it to yourself to be as authentic as possible every day, not for some performative award out here in these streets. You owe it to yourself like, you know, people dying every day. Life is not promised. So you want to make sure that you're going out as authentically as possible when you you know what i'm saying are in that casket people ain't gonna talk about how good you made those powerpoints or 
you know, how you showed up to work every day. People going to talk about the impact you had and how you made people feel right. People going to talk about your energy. They're going to talk about your character. They're going to talk about your integrity. They're going to talk about, again, like the impact that you left, the mark that you made. And I'm telling you, that mark probably ain't got much to do with your little nine to five job straight up. I don't care what you do. Right. So do right by yourself by doing right by yourself. Even if you have to be by yourself straight up, that's a bar. That's a bar. (laughs) All right, y'all. This has been Zach. Catch you next time. I love y'all. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.